Upon marking 538, we will turn our attention to a section of the Word of God tonight. And as you may have already noticed, we have arrived at that point in the month when we will give some thought to questions and answers this evening. And so whenever that takes place, it is usual is your questions. Your questions are the ones that are, have been selected and the ones that have formed the basis for the particular lesson tonight. You may notice, in fact, as you begin to look at this introductory slide, that as always... It's our goal to give thought to what the Word of God teaches, and quite often questions can be so motivational, they can often develop into a whole set of considerations. And sometimes tonight, at least one of the questions may have a little bit lengthier of an answer than what might, at least in some instances, be the case. But as always, always thankful for those questions, and as always, make use of that box out there in the foyer if you like, sharing your questions there or merely asking them to me personally in that way. But the first question for the evening then will be the following. If a child is sinless, why can't they be crucified for our sins? Or why could not a child have been crucified for our sins? You know, one of the premises that will form the basis for at least much of this particular question is really a rather good one. You've probably heard me say many times, and no doubt other Bible teachers as well, referring to the necessity of a blood sacrifice for the character of the sins of, of the human family. And that, of course, is taught strongly in Hebrews 9.22. For without shedding of blood is no remission. So again, there couldn't be any forgiveness of sin, any remission at all without an appropriate blood sacrifice. But that immediately leads us to note the following. The kinds of blood to which one might indeed have access are very few. Certainly there's animal blood. And in fact, the next element on that slide is to observe this. You and I remember that for centuries and centuries under the old law of Moses, there was the requirement of blood sacrifices that were animal in nature. In fact, the opening five to six chapters of Leviticus strongly detail that they were commanded on certain occasions to offer a bullock or a ram or a lamb or some other kind of animal. And as those sacrifices were offered, that was in keeping with the command of God, of course. A little bit later in Second Chronicles 29, beginning in verse 22, under the life and times of the kings of Israel, there was an extensive offering of animal sacrifices. But of course, we readily recognize one rather quick and potent point, and it's the next one. The sacrifice that was to be animal in character, even under that dispensation, was to be a sacrifice that had no blemish. So those animals that were offered, Deuteronomy 17.1 points so strongly it had to be an animal that was not one that had these blemishes or had ill-favoredness in some way. And we've often noted that meant they couldn't just go and kick pick up the sick animal and offer that to God and keep the rest for themselves. They couldn't pick out the one that was blind or the one that was crippled. God wanted the best. He wanted the animal that in fact was the prize of the herd, the prize of the number, not the one that was sickly, not the one that was weak, not the one that in some way was problematic. For that reason, the next point is this. We now arrive at this interesting thought. The Hebrew writer would say in Hebrews 10 verse 4, that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Even under the time that they were offered, 
though it was the command of God, it was not the perfect sacrifice that was required in order for the forgiveness, the full atonement, if you will, of their sins. In essence, one will learn in Hebrews 9, the whole idea was that Christ's blood ultimately was going to take care of their sins as well. But back to the question before us tonight. A sacrifice that was blemishless. So if now the animals of the blood of animals are not to be considered, what other kind of blood do we have? It has to be human now. That's the only other kind of blood that we have any access to. But there's a problem. That issue of Deuteronomy 17, blemishless. You and I can't fit that category. Because after all, we're guilty of sin. Because of that, we cannot possibly fit into that idea of being a blemishless or an acceptable sacrifice. So our blood cannot cleanse our own sins. We can't offer ourselves, nor can we offer some other human, at least as an adult. But the person who asked this question has asked an interesting, what about a child? Let's spend a few moments in and think about a child. Could a child... Now you and I remember in the Old Testament, there were times that, believe it or not... They offered children. Many of the kings, in fact, Manasseh was known for this. Remember the king Manasseh of the days of Judah? He offered children. Was this acceptable? The next thing on that slide you might appreciate is this. First, a child is born sinless. Now that flies in the face of the claim of those who are Calvinist. They claim a a child is born a sinner born in sin, having inherited it from his or her parents. But that just isn't so. The Bible doesn't teach that. A child is born innocent and pure and sinless. In fact, just a few verses might well occupy our thinking in that light. In Ezekiel 28 verse 15, the prophet of old directly told the king of Tyre, Thou wast perfect in all thy ways from the day thou wast created, until iniquity was found in thee. So, even as a baby, this person that occupied the throne of the king, the king of Tyre, he was perfect. He wasn't born a sinner. He wasn't born in filled with iniquity. That child was born pure and holy, and not until he chose to sin was there iniquity found in him. And that same premise is true of all of us. We are born innocent. We're born in a position that's safe. And then the time will come when we choose. We know better, but we then choose to sin. It may well be in that connection that we could recollect the Lord's statement in Matthew chapters 18 and 19. In fact, that pair of chapters, Jesus had an interesting opportunity of interacting with some children. And there was an occasion He brought a little child and set that child in the midst. And then He encouraged all of those who listened, you need to be like this little child. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. Unless you become like a little child, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Was he then saying that you've got to become like little sinners? You've got to become like little ones who in fact have been guilty of sin? Certainly the Lord was highlighting the pureness, the innocence, the preciousness, the humility of a child. In fact, along that line might we now note this. In Romans 9, verse number 11, it's not within a child to sin. They have not the capacity to do good or bad. 
They haven't learned what it is that constitutes sin. They haven't learned what it is that is wrong from right. And so again, they are in a position of safety. Revisit the question. So if a child is in fact not regarded as sinful, could that child in a blemishless state be such that his or her blood could be used as a sacrifice for your sins or mine? The answer is no. That would not be acceptable. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9 and let's look at a passage that will help us appreciate why the answer is no. In the ninth chapter of the Hebrew letter, in the midst of a discussion that continues to discuss matters connected to what the Lord did for us, allow me to begin reading in verse number 9. But Christ being come in high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now we'll begin, we'll continue reading in just a moment. But notice right now, the one who did the offering, which of course is Christ, it says He entered into the holy place. By a willful choice and by a decision on His part, He chose to act on behalf of those knowledgeable. A child doesn't have that capacity and knowledge. It's not as though this four- or five-year-old could choose. I'm going to offer, in light of the enormity of sin, and in light of what's required for the forgiveness of the sins of one and all, to offer myself. That child doesn't have that capacity. Let's read on. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There was a willful offering. That is to say, the knowledge of what was involved, the understanding of what was required, and the willful choice to then act in behalf of that which was needed. Christ Jesus could do all of that. In the state of an adult, He knew very well the nature of what sin was and what it brought about and its consequence. And He also knew that His sin, I'm sorry, that His blood having no sin, could serve as that particular sacrifice and so by that willful choice, He entered into the holy place and He obtained eternal redemption for us. So a child could not offer and thus satisfy the requirement in knowledge and in character of that which the blood sacrifice demanded. At this point, aren't we thankful for what the Lord did? Again, you and I could never have done it, but He could and He did. What about question two tonight? This second question asks the following. Can you take some translations of the Bible and show where they teach or translate something that's incorrect? And so the idea behind the Bible translations brings us to this next slide. And so may I first ask, there are some who in fact will cast a spotlight and make various claims about the translations of the Bible. Have you ever encountered someone who is of position to say, for instance, the King James Version is the one and only translation that is worthwhile, that is acceptable, and that should be utilized? Now, that is a perspective that's gone too far. 
much could be said worthwhile about the King James translation, but to say it's the only one, to say that all others are themselves forbidden in some way, is to go beyond what the character of this translation is. And we'll see, talk more about that shortly. But one of the first things that you and I might note, first, the original languages in which the Bible texts were written was Hebrew on the one hand, as well as Aramaic for the Old Testament, but Greek for the New, Koine Greek in particular. Well, that essence in Greek, as well as Hebrew and Aramaic, paints you and, e, you and me into a bit of an issue. We don't speak those languages. And so even if we had a Hebrew version of the Old Testament, we likely couldn't read it. At least that'd be true for me. Probably true for you as well. And even if we had a full Greek presentation of the New Testament, we wouldn't be able to read it. Again, true for me. Very few words I could read. The mass majority I couldn't. All of that points out how valuable a translation is. And aren't we thankful that the Bible is such that it's been translated into English as well as thousands of other dialects and languages around the world. In fact, even Jesus used a translation. You may find that interesting, but He did. At the top of this slide, would you take note the Septuagint translation? I said a moment ago that the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. But yet when Jesus was here walking on the earth, He, of course, vastly spoke and dealt with both Aramaic and English. I'm not English, Greek. And so it was that as the Lord used the Septuagint translation, you'll notice it was dated at 280 B.C. And that is the overwhelming translation that Jesus quoted from, as well as the, the apostolic characters. And so they used a translation too. Isn't that interesting? So you and I shouldn't at all feel as if it is a bad idea to employ an appropriate translation of the Scriptures. It is, with that said, could we first look at a chart? Now, this chart isn't anywhere near exhaustive. There are lots and lots of translations, but maybe we will look at this, then go back to this slide in just a moment. Here is a Bible translation chart. I just want to go ahead and show it to you to at least let you see a few basic features that we will revisit during the course of our answer to this question tonight. You may notice at the far left column are some letters that represent the, the name by which a certain translation might well be known. For instance, the Amplified Bible, that's the first one listed. And then there's the Contemporary English Version, the, the, the CEV. And then the English Standard Version, the ESV. And then the Messenger, or sorry, the Message Version. And then the NLT, the New Living Translation. The NIV, the New International Version, and so on. All I wanted to do at this point was bring to your attention. The next column is whether or not that kind of translation might well be encouraged or recommended as a translation from which one might want to study. And you'll notice some of them are not recommended. Very few of them, it turns out, likely should be. Now, we'll have more to say about that again a little bit later. But the third column is the one I wanted to bring your attention, at least for right now, before we revisit the previous slides. The philosophy that goes with that translation. Now, the group of people who are responsible for a translation, there's a certain translation philosophy that they use. 
And that philosophy will speak greatly about the nature of the work that they do. And so as you look down that list, some of them are word-for-word -word translations, such as the ESV. Look down to the third one, word-for-word. -word. That means that those who did the translating took the particular word in Hebrew or in Aramaic or in Greek, and they put in its place the corresponding English word if they were translating to English, or they put in the corresponding Latin word if they were translating to Latin. You get the idea. But word for word would preserve the, the original character of the original text. There is no inter interpretation, if you will, in it. Now, there are others who operate by a different philosophy. Look at the NLT, the second to the bottom. That is thought for thought. So here, in a translation such as that one, those who did the translating, they would read a sentence, and they would try to deduce in their mind what the author was trying to say. So they were interpreting it. And they would thus put into place, say in English, what that same interpretation was. So notice, it's not word for word. They were interpreting it or trying to do so. They were attempting to present what in their estimation the text is saying. I believe all of us could quickly note that not only is dangerous, it is eternally damning. So here you're allowing a man or a group of people who in their perspective were concluding what the text was saying. So obviously whatever their perspective was, their biases, their prejudices, all of it will be included in what they perceive and proceed to put in the text. Clearly one would never wish to utilize a thought-for-thought -thought translation. Now you'll notice that beside it is a resounding no. I don't think any of us would ever encourage somebody to honestly study from a New Living Translation in the effort to try and make sure to do what God wanted you to do. Let's now revisit some particular examples. Again, the person had asked the question, can you take some translations and show where they translate or teach something that is inappropriate or in fact incorrect? Let me step back then to that previous slide and start from the beginning. First of all, one of the translations is the Good News Bible. Maybe you've heard about it. Good news sounds like it'd be a fantastic idea. But it's something interesting as you look at Romans 1 verse 17 in that translation of the Bible. It overwhelmingly teaches what you and I would recognize as faith only, and so much so that I have in fact asked you to observe in quotes the rendering from that translation it says, For the gospel reveals how God puts men right with Himself. For it is through faith alone, from beginning to end. As the Scripture says, He who is put right with God, through faith shall live. All of us can see that those who made that translation put in it this phrase, faith alone. And so this is a particular place wherein the original language doesn't have the word alone in it. It doesn't have the word only or anything like it. But the person inserted it, teaching no doubt what maybe that individual had come to rest upon or certain particulars of the way that they had come to realize the nature of the Bible. Now that somewhat gets us started. What about the bottom one on that slide? The New English Bible. Notice what it teaches in Matthew 16 verse 18. And I say this to you, you are Peter the rock, and on this rock I will build my church and the forces of death shall never overpower it. 
Now that certainly sounds not only intriguing, but it doesn't sound like that which you and I have come to appreciate about the nature of distinguishing the rock to which the Lord referred and the person recognized as Peter. That's just one passage among some others in that translation that will certainly lead one to have some confidence in Catholicism. Again, a very a rather dangerous idea. As you transition to the next slide with me, look at this one. The Living Bible Paraphrase. The name alone is rather problematic, don't you think? A paraphrase, and yet look at what is set up in it in 2 Timothy 4.1. Now you and I realize that passage has such strong teaching about this, the nature of Christ, the nature of the judgment which He in fact will present. That translation reads like this. And so I solemnly urge you before God and before Jesus or Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when He appears to set up His kingdom. Now clearly, that translation asserts the kingdom isn't in existence yet, and it won't be until the Lord comes in judgment, in the final judgment. Now 2 Timothy 4.1, of course, doesn't say that. That, following on the heels of the way chapter 3 ends, you and I recall that Paul very differently said something not anything really like that, at least the last part of it. What about the next part of the living Bible paraphrase? Not only has it done major disservice to teaching as if the kingdom hasn't come yet. Look at this. In Ephesians 2.8, Because of His kindness, you who have, you have been saved through trusting Christ, and even trusting is not yourselves. It too is a gift from God. Salvation to those who trust in Christ. That's what that says. Now Ephesians 2.8 doesn't say that. Ephesians 2.8 rather says, By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Notice again, this has inserted trusting in the Lord as the sole means through which salvation is to be appreciated. Now, that one more time leads us to say, one must be careful, rather mindful, as you give thought again to the idea of these translations. So far, we've looked at only a small handful, but probably the most well-known ones are yet to come. Look at this one. Have you heard about the Revised Standard Version, the RSV? It occupied a rather high position at one time, and probably still does, at least in the mind of some. Look at some of the considerations. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse number 14. Now that comes from the Old Testament, of course, but listen to what it says. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now at first sight, as you and I hear that, would we be apprised of the fact that there's a notable thing presented? A young woman will conceive and bear a son. That's not the way Matthew understood it. In Matthew 1, verses 23 and following, when he quoted that, he applied it to a virgin. And so it is in the King James translation and many others. It says, A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. There's a great deal of difference between a woman and a virgin. 
you and I recognize that that distinction is such that Matthew appreciated it was to be a virgin that would conceive, and this was a prophecy detailing the wonderful virgin birth of the Lord. The RSV changed that to a young woman. I might say in an interesting twist, a later edition of the RSV changed it back to a young, uh, rather to, to a virgin. Don't you find that interesting? It was about 35 years later when the next edition came out, they changed it back to virgin. But as you read some of those initial RSVs, be mindful, it will still say a young woman. That is it all. Look at what occurs next. Near the bottom of that slide, look at Romans 11, verse number 20, the way the RSV reads it. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast only through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. Again, you may take note, this reference to you stand only in faith. You may notice in the King James, it doesn't say the word only. In fact, the Greek doesn't have it either. The writers inserted it. They, in essence from their perspective, thought it better to include it. Now, you and I know we can't speak for God. We dare not tamper with the Bible by adding things to it that, that, that He didn't put there. That's just, again, another issue to be mindful of. Look at John 3.16 in the RSV. It's the one I put at the bottom. Surely one of the most prized verses in the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. How does that version read it? Take out the word begotten. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish. Why they take out begotten? That's a better question than I know how to answer. Apparently some kind of a problem they had with a concept behind that He was God's only begotten Son. Whatever that means, they took it out. It's not there. Well, you get the idea that there are some translations that will insert ideas or words and take out others that may be befitting to a certain theme or idea. This RSV perhaps brings you to the NIV. Probably one of the most well-known international translations of the Bible. But let's note some things about it. By the way, I wouldn't encourage you to use the RSV. I wouldn't encourage you to use the NIV. Look at some of the things that might be said about it. First of all, in Matthew chapter 19. Now, you and I might keep in mind that this is a chapter that presents many ideas, certainly about the Lord's interaction with the Pharisees. But in that interaction, there was a discussion about marriage and divorce. And in particular... Verse number 9 of that chapter reads in a rather well-known way like this, "...whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso that marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery." Now the Lord's statement, that passage has been a guide for our understanding for His teaching on that subject for 2,000 years now. Look at how the NIV renders that verse. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Now may I say, there is a world of difference between marital 
unfaithfulness and fornication. Marital unfaithfulness could encompass a lot of things. Maybe she's not a good enough cook. Maybe she doesn't provide her other household duties the way she should. One could claim that, I suppose, but that's not fornication. It's a world of difference between the two. I would offer the thought that has greatly troubled in many ways the teaching of that subject because some who use this translation could then say she lied to me, so she wasn't faithful to me. I've got a right to divorce her. No, you don't. Lying is not the same as fornication. Again, they are nowhere near the same, but you see the idea. Maybe the translators thought they were doing a good thing, but they made a horrendous mistake. Not only that, you may notice in terms of this, there's an earlier reference in Matthew 5, 32, and they changed it there again. They changed it from fornication to marital unfaithfulness. May I again say one must be cautious in light of the translations that might well be utilized. But look at another one in the NIV. It's at the bottom of that slide. In Acts chapter 2, verse 31, this is a passage wherein Peter was describing the nature of the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. And in light of that resurrection in particular, he, of course, had some things to say about the Lord being in Hades. But listen to what the NIV did. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. Do you see what they did? Rather than Hades, they put grave in there. Now, Hades and the grave are two different things. They are not the same. You and I can go to the graveyard. We can visit a cemetery. But that's not the same as the Hadean realm. And yet, notice, that kind of assertion would lead one to believe that the Lord's Spirit was still in the grave, which clearly isn't the case, nor was it in any way what the Bible taught. Just another idea, mindful of the fact that the words are very significant and they carry with them a significant element in truth. This NIV is again one that would not be recommended. And we'll look again at that table in just a minute. What about the Amplified New Testament? You might be aware, again, there are many particular Amplified versions. This is just one of them. Notice what it does to Ephesians 5 verse 19. Speak out to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, offering praise with voice and instruments, and making melody with all your heart to the Lord. Now that word instruments is literally in this amplified version, leading one who was reading that maybe to suppose that one could use easily a mechanical musical instrument in worship and that there would be no issue in any way with it. But again, might you and I keep note, just as I've invited you to notice on that slide, the words and instruments were in brackets initially, and here was the, and here was the description. They, in essence, taught that these are actually things that could be employed and done so in a way that would be no danger, if you please, to the character of the text or the passage. You'll note at the bottom that it was simply fair to say that one must be cautious about translations. I suppose it'd be ideal if all of us could read Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew and read it in the original presentations, but since we can't, we surely need to use a translation one that is worthwhile, and one that certainly is true to the original languages.
And so back to that table, that, that listing I invited you to notice earlier. I've tried to summarize some of the things that might be said. The Amplified Translation, the Contemporary English Version, those would not be recommended due to the translation philosophy. The ESV is a fairly modern translation, but it is one that would be recommended. To my knowledge, there's no harm it could do to one's faith. To utilize that translation, it keeps intact the word-for-word philosophy and presents the truth of God in ways that do no disservice to the character of that truth. The message translation wouldn't be a recommended one, again, because of its philosophy. The bottom two, again, would not be recommended for the same issue or problem. That table goes on to say this. That Good News Bible that we referenced earlier, that wouldn't be recommended either. The CPB, that one is almost shocking. If you ever have a chance to read some of it, you probably will quickly close it. It could not even be claimed to be a thought-for-thought translation. It's what's called a free translation. The person who put that one together chose to do so in a way using what you and I would call modern slang language. And so quite frankly, it's profane at times. You'll be shocked at what's found within it. (laughs) Enough said about that one. The NEB, again, is a paraphrase. It's the New English Bible. The RSV wouldn't be recommended even in its updated version. It is still problematic. The New American Standard Bible, pretty good translation on the whole. That one we could hold out to be something that would at least be one you could compare to other translations and recognize it's a word-for-word one. The Holman Christian Standard Bible at the bottom is, again, not a worthwhile one, or at least not a word-for-word one. The King James translation is a reliable one, and certainly we're thankful, acquainted with it. The New King James is also quite reliable. The NAB is not a reliable one. The ASV is arguably the single best one that there is. Historically, it came about like this. In 1885, there was a particular translation set forth. And although at the time there was much to be said in favor of it, in 1901, so only 16 years later, there was a concerted effort to improve what was lacking in it and the group of scholars who put the 1901 ASV version together did so with the highest consideration of not only the ancient manuscripts, but also the strongest inclination for -for word-for-word translation. And to this day, arguably, that translation stands alone as the single best English translation of the Bible in terms of being word-for-word true to the originals. So if you have an ASV, prize it in the sense that they're getting harder to find. Denise and I have found, at least recently, though at one time you could fairly readily find ASVs. They're not as readily to find them anymore. They're becoming more difficult to obtain them. So if you have one, you might appreciate and not let that one be loaned out, at least in such a free way, since you might not get it back. But we close that slide with LBP, the Living Bible Paraphrase, which again would not be a recommended one at all. Two questions had come our way tonight. The first of those questions had to do with the possibility of a child sacrifice, and we found the answer to be no. 
The second one was about translations and the dangers that could go with them. May I say as we close the lesson that always of interest for you and me to consider the Word of God. And so if you have questions, be sure to share them in the box out there. We have some more to come next month. And with them, we will take up some more subjects not related to these, but subjects connected to some other interesting matters vital to our Christian life. Tonight, if there's anyone in this assembly that would have an interest in a public response to the gospel's call of invitation, we'd like to make that opportunity available and issue to you the fact that it's the Lord's invitation. It isn't that of the elders here at the Pippin Church of Christ. It's not myself. We are merely happy to be servants to assist you as you respond to the Lord's invitation. If you would wish to become a Christian, you do that by expressing belief. As you do that, you repent of your sins, confess the Lord's name, and be baptized. If you become a Christian and would wish to come back to your first love, having walked away from it, you realize the Lord's love for you has never waned. It's your choice to have walked away from Him. But His Word will not return void, Isaiah 55, 11. And He invites you to come with haste to His side so that He can cleanse your sins again and He can put you in a position of faithfulness and fidelity. Tonight, if we could help in either of those ways, we would like to do so as we stand and sing the chosen song.